This is an audio sermon recorded at the Church of Christ at Johnson Mill in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 3801 Johnson Mill Boulevard. We often hear uh, sermons preached about the goodness of God and we know He is indeed good. Uh, that's evident by looking at His creation. It's evident by looking at our own lives and the lives around us. It's, it's abundantly clear with the blessings that He showers upon us all. It's evident to most of us by the sacrifice of the Father of his, uh, with His Son, Jesus Christ, upon the cross of Calvary. And I want to look at, really, uh, in context, we're talking about the holiness of God. God is so holy, entirely holy, that as we look at His justice, so it must be also. His justice is holy. And so as we go through this, we're going to be really in context looking at the nature of God, as I stated, and His righteousness, His justice, and I'll define terms. Let's, uh, let's look at the terms righteousness and justice. Both of these words are often translated by one word in the Hebrew and one word in the Greek. When we're reading in the New Testament, you run into the word righteous or righteousness or the word uh, just or justice. They're translated into these words. In the Old Testament, you see it, and I'm no Hebrew scholar or Greek scholar. I, I'm a strong scholar, so I look at Strong's and look at the definitions. But to break these words down and to try to get an understanding of what it is that we're looking at when we're talking about the righteousness of God, we are looking at, uh, in the Old Testament, that word righteous or even just um, is sadiq, and uh, it literally means just or lawful or righteous, and especially as it pertains to man. In the New Testament, that word is dikaios, uh, however close I am to pronouncing it, but it means equitable. Um, it means by implication innocent or holy. So we're talking about the same thing when we're talking about God. He's perfect, He is whole, He is just, He is righteous. In all ways that you could describe God, this is Him. Now then, what is right? How do we know what is right? How can we know what is right? How do we determine what is just? When the words righteousness or justice appear in the Bible, as we see, these are the meanings that are, are extracted uh, from that, are translated from that into our word righteous or righteousness and uh, just or justice. In a biblical context, uh, let me back up. The original root of these words generally convey the idea of being stiff or straightened. That's, that's the roots of these words, where they come from. And that makes sense because what we're looking at really in a biblical context is that which is morally straight. That which is uh, morally fair. It embodies the idea of of equity, um, fairness, uh, impartiality. Justice is the application of fairness to moral situations. And, and so when you look at that, we don't see that so much in the world, do we? But when we're looking at God and we're studying who God is, that's what we're looking at. Justice, when applied to God, describes the way God is. It describes who God is. God's justice is not just something external. Uh, he is infinitely righteous within Himself. Again, that is just who He is. When God acts justly, He is not doing so to conform to some outside criteria or some law or principle or standard outside Himself. He is simply acting as Himself in any given situation. God's perfect law comes from within His own nature. Again, and I've said it many times and probably will, it is who He is. It just is. You know, everything else in the universe is only just 
to the, de to the degree, I'm getting my tongue working here, to the degree that it conforms to the righteous nature of God. That's the only way anything else on the outside of God can be righteous is if it conforms to what God declares is righteous. It is evil and of Satan whenever it doesn't. God rewards and punishes all the human races, uh, race uh, on the basis of how they conform to His standard. So when He punishes evil men or rewards the righteous, He is simply acting from within His own nature, uninfluenced by anything that is not Himself. Every human being will be judged fairly, because it's impossible for God to do otherwise. Because it just is who He is. He cannot condemn the innocent. He cannot and will not clear the guilty. He will not turn a blind eye to sin in anyone. Nor will He punish with undue harshness. The punishment He meets out will always fit the crime since there's no inequity within him. God is always perfectly fair in his dealings with each and every person. No favoritism is ever indulged by God or in indulged in by God. <coughs> Pardon me. Though infinite favor is extended to those who come under the righteousness of, of God, and we'll talk about this later, but he cannot show partiality. He can't take a bribe. He's no respecter of persons. The Lord will record to every man according to his deeds. That's what we're taught. And again, that's who God is. He will pay back each one according to his deeds. Look, God's ju uh, justice, his justice is foundational to the way he governs the universe and everything in it. Look at Psalm 89 in verse 14. The psalmist here says, Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Now, I do want you to start keying in on a lot of the verses that we're going to read when we talk about justice and judgment, that there also is a side of mercy, and we're going to get to that as we study. And I want to but just be noticing that as we go along. Psalm 19 in verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This means that the Lord is always fair in His dealings and always does what is right. Now hopefully we've made that case clear as we've opened this up and begun the study. But look, the gods of the other nations in the Bible that we read about were often described as being unfair, unpredictable, and really arbitrary. But the concept of the God of Israel held by the prophets of Israel is one of an all-powerful ruler and king, high and lifted up, reigning with complete fairness. David described this in Psalm 9, uh, 9 beginning in verse 7. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared His throne for judgment. And He shall judge the world in righteousness. <coughs> he shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. Psalm 89 and verse 9. For He cometh to judge the earth. With righteousness shall He judge the world and the people with equity. Moses, at the end of his long life, with all the many dealings uh, with God, uh, in a multitude of situations, he wrote this in Deuteronomy, in verse or chapter 32, verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without evil. Just and upright is he. I don't know how you can say it any clearer. God is always just. He always acts uprightly. He always is perfectly fair. 
He always shoots straight, if you will, to use terminology I'd use today. He can't do otherwise. He must always do what is right because that's his nature. So, that brings us to this point then that I want to spend a few moments discussing. God's justice versus man's justice, or injustice, I should say. Let's look at the compare, uh, comparison of the two. Psalm 9, uh, pardon me, Ecclesiastes 7 in verse 20. The preacher here says, For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. You see, we're quite familiar with what righteousness should be, but we're very familiar with unrighteousness. That's, that's mankind. <coughs> Pardon me. God is just in all His ways, but it's obvious, I'm sure to all of us, by reading newspapers, watching the evening news, maybe personal experiences, that mankind is not always just. We have injustice that happens all around us. We see it every day. God is full of equity, but men of this world are full of inequity or the absence of fairness. God is a God of perfect justice, but the world we inhabit is filled with injustice. God is perfectly righteous, but man is unrighteous. None of us, none of us, as the preacher said it here in Ecclesiastes 7, have lived up to his righteous standards, which flow from his righteous nature. All men have offended the justice of God. Psalm 53 and 3, the psalmist wrote, There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Not one. Now here's where it really matters. Our just God cannot tolerate any unrighteousness. He can't. He is too righteous to tolerate the least hint of any moral unrighteousness. He must absolutely reject that which is not 100% righteous, which includes us as well. Because of our unrighteousness, we are all under the sentence of death. Ezekiel 18 and 4, the prophet here uh, reminds us, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. You see, we are responsible for our sins, and we must answer for them. Paul wrote to the Romans, said, For the wages of sin is death. I, I like the terminology wages because it implies it is exactly what we have worked for and earned. Our sin deserves death. And that indeed is the punishment for it. The Bible categorically declares that there is nothing a person can do in, uh, in and of his own that can make himself righteous in the Lord's sight. And that's quite a dilemma when you think about it. There's nothing that we can give that is adequate to make us right in the sight of God. No man can be made righteous on the grounds of his character, on the grounds of his conduct. Even our best efforts will always be inadequate. And if that's true, and I believe the Bible teaches us that this, if that's true, that's quite a quite a position to be in before God. Isaiah 64 and verse 6. Again, God speaks to us through His prophet Isaiah. He says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. I challenge you to do a word study and look up the word filthy rags. I'm not going to go into it this morning, but I challenge you to do a word study on that and look at that. And it may help you to understand the depth at which he is speaking and how dirty we really, really are before him. We are an unclean thing. Romans 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All 
That A-L-L, little bitty word, includes every one of us in the whole world, all of creation. Look, it's before us. We recognize that we don't really have, <laughs> we offer what we have, but we really don't have anything in the, in the big scheme of God's salvation. It's not about us. It's about what He did. But let me tell you something. That sin in our lives has to be punished. God's not a righteous judge if He doesn't. He's not fair. Because what is fair is for it to be punished because we are sinful. I'm going to have this fly bothering me this morning, I can tell. A holy God must punish sin. A holy God must punish sin. God is so holy that He cannot and will not dwell in the presence of sin. It was true in the Garden of Eden. It was true under the old law, and it's true today. The prophet Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 1 and verse 13, Thou art of purer eyes, speaking of God, than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Remember, our God is holy. He's holy. He's righteous. He's pure. Paul wrote, Romans 1 and verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God being poured out on the unrepentant, wicked, is a necessary and righteous judgment that flows from God's infinitely holy nature. Justice must be served. If God is just, justice will be served. Now then, when we talk about justice, it's not a foreign concept to us. I know it's not, not to any of us. It's not, this isn't something we've never heard of before. Even within the laws of our own land, we understand justice. When a crime is committed, we expect the legal system to find, arrest, and try the perpetrator or the one who did the evil, whatever it is. We understand that process even in our own system. We expect the system to be fair or just. And if this person is found guilty, we expect the guilty to pay for their crimes. That's our expectation. Now, this is where our legal system, as good as it may be, cannot equal the justice of God. We see failures in it. It's not perfect, unfortunately. But... It has the human element, right? We're not God. But make no mistake, God's justice is perfect. He will not make mistakes as the judge. He will not make mistakes, mistakes as he pronounces sentence or a penalty to it. Okay? We expect justice from our legal system. So my question is, why would we expect a pass for our actions from our holy and just God. You see, our whole system that we have today, I mean, at least uh, generally speaking, is based upon Judeo-Christian principles from the old law, generally speaking. Now, I mean that in a general sense, but that's where it's rooted from. Why would we expect any different from God? Although people do. God has always demanded justice for wrongs committed. Always. He has. Under the old law, a major portion of the law was about appropriate punishment or the right punishment for the sin. Justice as a judicial act of God under the old law encompassed the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Whatever happened here, this is your punishment. And he laid it out very clearly within the old law. Justice was always a part of his uh, system, if you will, or who he was. Eternally speaking, the same is true. The same is true, and it has to be due to God's nature. God has declared that justice must be served. 
The question is, how do we fit into that picture? Well, that's where we're going to go with this. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Let's look at God's justice in punishment. Scripturally speaking, we have many, many examples, and I'm just going to highlight a few. But a few, a few examples where we have seen God implement or execute His judgment upon people. And let's start back at the very beginning, Adam and Eve. <laughs> Adam and Eve, who, by the way, don't be so hard on Adam and Eve because they just represent who we are. They're us. They represent us. They, they fell from God. They sinned. And we're all guilty of the exact same thing. But let's, let's get into this. Adam and Eve. Genesis 2 and 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. I want to ask the first question is, did Adam and Eve die the day they ate of the fruit? Because that's what God said would happen. We know that Adam and Eve continued to live. What is the explanation of this? Can we understand this? Let me tell you something. Their sin in the garden was more than just... I'm not taking away from the fact that we did become... We're a fallen world. They, we, they did ultimately die, right, physically. The, the idea of decay and everything that was dying around them happened. But let me tell you something. They had a relationship with God that they lost that day. And they were cast from the garden, from God's presence. There's, an, there's a spiritual aspect of this that sometimes is missed which is the very point of our redemption, to, re, to rebuild or regain that fellowship with God that God so desires. You see, Adam and Eve died. <laughs> they lost that, if you will, eternal life at that moment and were cast out of that garden. And mankind had to be restored to God. And so that's the picture that's happening here. God had to punish them. We've already stated and, and read Scripture that God couldn't uh, be, dwell, if you will, in the presence of sin or of evil. And God had to cast them forth. In fact, He said, let us cast them forth, lest they partake of the tree of life that's in the midst of the garden. They had to go. It's not fun. Oh, that's, that's put really lightly, but... I can't even imagine God's heart as He cast them out of the garden. What He longed for them so much, what He longed to have with them, that, that close relationship in a spiritual sense, and how God must have felt to have to cast them out because sin had to go. Their sin separated them from God. Isaiah tells us that also. Genesis 3, verses 23 and 24. Therefore the Lord, Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of, of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. You see, they were not going to be permitted to be there. No matter what they did, no matter how they tried, no matter the efforts they put forth, I, I'm being a little bit imaginative maybe there, but they weren't coming to the tree of life again. They were not going to see it. They were not going to experience it. And so he drove them out. Quickly, let me bring up some others. Noah and the flood. You remember the story. God destroyed the world for the wickedness that it was. But I also want you to note there was mercy attached to this picture too, to this story, if you will, to this account as we read it in the Bible. There was a merciful side of God too. He saved Noah and his family and much of the creatures of the, of the earth. Sodom and Gomorrah. Did God execute justice upon Sodom and Gomorrah? The Bible teaches us He did. He punished these cities, yet there was a merciful side to this story also. The golden calf worshipers. You remember that? 
When Moses came down and the children of Israel are worshiping a golden calf, just after they've witnessed <laughs> miracles, and this is where they turned. And many of them suffered their demise. They died at the hand of God. They were punished for that. And there also was a merciful side to that. And he let up before just wiping them all out. The Jews who would reject Christ. I refer you to Matthew 21 and 1 Thessalonians 2. Those who would reject Christ. <laughs> Jesus said would suffer rightful justice as a result. Negative justice, if you will. Ananias and Sapphira, after the church was established and it was growing, and they lied to the Holy Spirit. And there's an example before us at, the, at how critically important it is to honor God's commandments and who God is and His righteousness. Justice was served. Some of that's harsh. Some of that seems hard for us to grasp. And it is. Some of it is. It's hard for me to grasp a full understanding and, 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 and realization of, of why some of these things happened in such big ways. But listen, as surely as sin was punished in Bible times, it'll be punished today. That being said, in light of an eternity spent with Him... It's not possible for us to live eternally in heaven where He dwells if we still have sin in our lives. Again, this really leaves us in a spot. How is it then that we, that we might have a promise or of the hope of eternity? It's a dilemma because we're guilty of sin, all of us, no one accepted. The penalty for sin must be paid and we are responsible for that. And we see through the many examples of God, uh, God's uh, punishment upon people for their sins, we too must face that. We're responsible for it. So what have we shown thus far? The penalty for our sins must be paid. Wrongs will be righted. And God's holiness will not permit injustice. It can't. But I also want you to note, 1 John 3 and verse 4, the Bible says that, and John said, the sin that, let me get my tongue going, sin is the transgression of God's law. What is a transgression? That's when we go against the law, when we break the law. If I break the law out here driving and I'm speeding, I am subject to what? Getting a ticket, getting a fine, having a penalty attached to that. We understand this concept. Well, John identifies this. When we transgress or break God's law, it is sin to us. And it is sin before God. God views that as sin. We have broken His law. James 2 and verse 10, For whoever shall keep all the law but stumbles in one, he has become guilty of all. You see, it doesn't matter if it's 30 million sins before God or one. We're just as guilty. We're just as guilty. One sin will separate us. Again, that's a humbling thought when you think about what our need is before Him and, and before a holy and a righteous God. So the question is asked, why then? Because that's harsh. That, that just seems harsh to me in my limited view of it, but it seems harsh. Why then, in view of eternal damnation for man, eternal separation from God, does God not just extend His saving mercy to everyone? Why not? And the answer, really, <laughs> is that God indeed freely extends His mercy to everyone. He extends it to everyone. But He cannot make it mandatory without violating man's free will, without contradicting Himself. It's not in His nature. It's not who He is. And He cannot force you to be saved. He's given us an opportunity. But His mercy's there. 
His grace is offered, but we've just got to accept it. He can't go against himself. 2 Timothy 2.13, he cannot deny himself or contradict himself. These passages clearly teach he cannot do this. It would violate who he is. And we don't have time to go into this specific question because there's a lot that we could talk about about this, and I want to stay on task. But that's a question that inevitably comes up in this and in, in our studies. I'm sure you've run into this. Well, why doesn't God just save everybody if He's a God of love? Well, He's a God of love, and He is offering His mercy and His grace, without a doubt. I refer you to Exodus 34, Ezekiel 18. That's some good passages to study on that subject. But a more pertinent question for us, I believe, is this. Why, in view of eternal separation for man, do we not expend more effort to make sure that every human being on earth knows that God's mercy is available to them through Christ's death upon the cross? That's really a more important question. Why do we sit back as if it's not that important when we know it's critically important to us and it's just as important to everyone else even if they don't know it yet? The Apostle Paul said it like this, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 11, <clears throat> Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men... I mean, that's almost an idea of just begging them, doing whatever it takes, right, to save them from an eternal separation from God, the very relationship that God wants with His people. Hebrews 10, 31 <clears throat> says this, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now look, a lot of this up to this point, we've talked a lot about the negative side of God's justice and He certainly, that is an aspect of it that is, is critically important that we understand. But I also want you to know there's a positive side to His justice. And I want to look at that for a moment. There's justice found at the cross of Calvary and what that means for you and me is mercy. What that means for you and me is His grace. God's justice revealed at the cross of Calvary. His grace, His mercy is far greater than all our sin. Because Jesus is righteous and He's perfect, when we place our faith in Him in obedience to the gospel, we then are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's one of the gifts that we're given. It's as if we are clothed with His robe of righteousness. We put on Christ. And so when our God, the judge, looks at us, He sees Christ covering over our lives. He doesn't see our sin. And Jesus <laughs> offers Himself in our stead so that we can take on His righteousness and have that relationship with God that God has longed for. It's so humbling to me, so incredibly humbling. When in obedience, when we obey the gospel, when we're in obedience to the gospel, we're given this righteousness of Jesus, and ultimately what happens then is His justice is shown. Now, I'm going I'm to explain it, but His justice is shown here when He saves us because of Jesus who bore our sin and paid our penalty. Our sins were paid for. It was fair. It's fair to set us free as long as the penalty was paid. And that penalty was paid at the cross of Calvary. And we're free. I mean, it's just, it's an incredible thing. I know you know that too. I know you believe that. But it's just amazing, amazing. And then we look at our lives and go, why? Why did He do that for such an evil people? Because He loves us. 
He has loved mankind since creation. That's why He sent Jesus to begin with. To rescue, to save, to bring mankind back into a restored fellowship and communion, if you will, with God that God had from the beginning with His people, with His children, with, with the, the human race. And we have opportunity to respond to that and to come to Him. Romans 5, verse 20. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And I'm going to pause right there. We're taught, and even in many other passages, but the law was brought in to teach us what sin was, to teach us what sin was about, to teach us what it was that violated God's law. And so as we came to an understanding of, you, you know, you're reading God's law and then you go, oh, I've been committing this. I didn't know that was a sin. I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, I know, but this is the principle. I didn't know that I was in sin. I've been violating God's law. And then you read some more and you go, I've been violating it here. I've been violating it here. And my whole life's a mess because I'm not in agreement with God's law. And so the idea or the understanding of our sin, of our trespasses is increased. But what we must know and understand is that His grace increases even the more. He has sufficient grace to cover our sins. That's amazing in and of itself. But he'll, he'll cover all of us and all the world, actually, if they'll turn to Him. Verse 21, So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a promise. Isaiah 53 and 6, we're reminded... All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus bore our sin. He took our sin to the cross. He paid the penalty. We may have not deserved it, and we certainly didn't. But from God's perspective, the penalty's paid. You see, we reconciled this and he has brought us back in to reconciliation because of God's justice through Jesus Christ he was just he was fair he didn't let sin go unpaid for right the guilt of sin is removed from us and put on him the sins are washed away and hidden with Christ and the repentant sinner is restored to fellowship with God and so justification or the, the act of being justified is the judicial act of God. It's God as if you see Him sitting on His throne and declaring justice before us, okay? That is His judicial act where He declares us free from the penalty of our sins. Man, that's a beautiful picture. And it takes place at the cross when we come, in, come to Him in obedience to the gospel. This is the beautiful part of the nature of God. By His own willingness to pay for man's sins through the crucifixion of Jesus and by man's response to God or His offer of forgiveness through faith and obedience, we are rescued from His justice or that negative side of justice, if you will. Justice was served at the cross. It was negative. It was horrible. But as it was served, mercy was extended to us. And so the punishment required for rejecting God's willingness to pay our debt is this, that our sin must then run its deadly course where we'll be given the punishment rightly, ours to be had, eternal damnation eternal separation from God eternally justice make no mistake justice will be served 
It will be served. We will face it or it can be put on Christ and you can allow God to do what He came here to do to save you. It's by God's justice and judgment that righteousness is carried out upon the human race or judgment is carried on uh, carried out upon the human race. It's by His wrath that punishment is carried out on the wicked and rebellion, or rebellious. Romans 11 and verse 22. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God. You see, that it, God's just. There's, there's all sides to this, right? One extreme to the other. On them which fell, severity. But toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in His goodness. There's a promise of hope. For us. 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 6, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, you see, it's a righteous thing for God to do that, and to give you who are troubled rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord, uh, Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Those who are not, uh, have not had justice served at the cross are not covered by Jesus' righteousness are not going to see the presence of the Lord. They are not going to see the glory of His power. And that's why it's incumbent upon us to be ready to share that with others because it's just as critically important with every person driving by this road as it is for you and me today. It's just as important. They need it. And we should have hearts that desire that, of course. The final judgment day is coming. Where God's infinite justice will be executed. Justice will be served. I've said that a few times. You've heard that phrase. But it will be served. It's also because of His justice that those, though, who by faith in Jesus Christ obey Him are rewarded accordingly. But it's still justice, right? It just was at the cross. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. It is beyond our ability to understand or imagine. But that's how great it is. And that's okay. If I had a full grasp and understanding of it now, I may not appreciate it then, I suppose. But I long for that. We've been promised hope. Look at Hebrews 9 and 27. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment, it's coming. Acts 17 and verse 30. And the, and the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. And that man, by that man, whom he hath ordained, Jesus, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Listen, you can believe, you can have the faith, and you can trust in the fact that God will do exactly what he said he will do, and he's pointing it at the fact, he's giving us the assurance at the fact because he raised Jesus from the dead. And if he raised Jesus from the dead, guess who else he's going to raise from the dead? We will live. We will live. Great amount of hope there. 1 Peter 4 and verse 5. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. The day is coming. Are you prepared? Are you ready? You see, Jesus was the only one to ever fulfill the law. He was perfect. He was the only one who could rightly become our sacrifice again because we are lawbreakers. We've disobeyed God just as surely as the Jews of old did or Adam and Eve, or where do you stop with the list? All mankind is guilty of the same thing. We in and of ourselves are not good enough to stand in the presence of a righteous God. 
what the sacrifice of bulls and goats did under the Old Testament law and sacrifices, what they couldn't do because they would only temporarily forgive sins, right? Jesus being the perfect Son of God, sin-free, spotless Lamb of God, could forever, forever, at one event on the cross of Calvary, forgive our sins when He offered up Himself as that final sacrifice, the last one that God's ever going to recognize. That's the sacrifice to point to. That's the crux of it. That's the, that's the pinnacle. That's the point at which we all look to for our forgiveness. The fact that Jesus died upon the cross. He cannot and will not accept your good works. Our good works are completely unworthy. Should we do good works? Of course. I'm not taking away from that. But if we're bringing that to the table for our forgiveness, the sacrifice was made at the cross. You have nothing to offer. We need to submit to that gospel and our, live our lives according to what Christ has done for us. We do for others. I mean, that's, that's just where we're at. Jesus took our sins. He nailed them to the cross, Colossians 2.14. He clothed us with His righteousness. It is His righteousness that makes us acceptable to Him. Through the power of His shed blood, we are saved. And it is only in effect when we, through our faith, our response, our trust, when we respond to Him and His call in baptism, when we fully surrender ourselves and submit our lives into His hands and trust Him, when we do this, we come into contact with the saving power of the blood of Christ. And it does, or He does, I should say, His work upon our souls. Quickly before we close, Colossians 2 and verse 12. Paul reminds us here that we are buried with Him in baptism. By the way, that Him is Jesus. We're buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead. Let's dissect this verse real quick. We're buried with Him. This is not an act that you are doing alone. And it all becomes about what you're doing. It's not that. Your act of obedience in baptism is to be buried with Christ. And we're, we're touching the cross, by the way. We're touching His death. We're touching His burial, if you will. And then read the next one. Wherein also ye are risen with Him. And we'll pause there. We're not alone when we arise to walk that new life. We're not alone. In fact, we couldn't walk the new life if we were. We rise with Him. He's there with us when we go down. He's there with us when we go up. I know I'm, I sound almost silly about it, but that's, in essence, exactly what's happening. We're doing this. We're connecting with Christ, and we're doing this with Him, He says. And this is what gets me about folks that want to say that baptism is just a work. It's, it's a work that you're doing. It's not a work that I'm doing. I'm just submitting to God, but I want you to look at who's doing the work. Wherein also you're risen with Him, through the faith of the operation of God. We believe when we respond in, a, in an appropriate way, we believe that God is going to do the operation, that God's going to do the work, and He's going to do exactly what He said He would do, and that is wash away our sins. This is His work. This is not our work. We're just submitting. That's where God does a work on our souls when we fully have an understanding and appreciation for the sacrifice of Christ and we allow that sacrifice to wash away our sins through this act. And then he equates it to who he hath raised, who hath raised him from the dead. Who? Raised who from the dead? Jesus. You see, God <laughs> equates this whole thing with the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And it's that same power that allows us to raise up and walk a new life. 
Do we have the Spirit today walking with us? Was He promised to us? You bet. And it happens right here. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead will supply you the power to walk in this life after the Spirit and not after the flesh. This verse is so revealing to me, and sorry to spend so much time on it, but I, I want you to get this verse because we just glaze over it sometimes. So much is said right here. The real question we get to is, what will you do with Jesus then? When we have this fuller understanding, I don't know if it's a complete understanding because I still struggle to grasp things, but it's a fuller understanding of who Jesus is and what He did for us. What do we do with Jesus? And I ask you that question this morning. What will you do with the sacrifice that He made on your behalf? Do you choose to suffer God's justice alone? Do you choose to pay for those penalties yourself? Are we too prideful, really, to allow the Lord to do the very work He came here to do in our lives? Or will you choose to have your penalty paid for through Jesus Christ on the cross and come to Him repentant and making a change and pursuing Him, following after Him all the days of your life? 1 Thessalonians 4 and 16 what, a, what great hope we have. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The words of Jesus giving us comfort, giving us the promise of a hope to come. This is what the Lord is going to do for us ultimately, and that's our hope. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. To receive new sermons each week, subscribe on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and God bless.